Well, good afternoon and welcome to Christ the King. It's great to have you here. I want to begin by sharing today a story from a visit I made to a university in the States. It was a couple of years ago. We were putting on a series of events on the Christian faith, and I was handing out flyers. And a professor from the university came up to me, and he learned that I was a Christian. And he asked me a very interesting question. He asked, are you one of those Christians who believes in sin? And maybe I should have said some kind of trap was coming, uh, but I just said in response, I am. And right away, what he said back to me was, why do you have to go around making people feel bad about themselves? Why do you have to come and do that here? For this professor, the message of historical Orthodox Christianity, far from being a message of good news, was something that was anything but that. It was discouraging, it was depressing, and it was something he didn't want to have on his university campus. And when we come to these verses on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus extols these virtues of being poor in spirit, mourning, and being meek, I think in our culture today, we can get a sense that maybe there's something unhealthy here for us to hold these values up as something to strive after. Maybe there's a kind of morbidity or even a masochism involved with Christians aspiring after these things. It's not healthy to want to grow in these ways. And yet Jesus calls those associated with these virtues blessed. I think it's only right for us to ask, how does that work? And how can this be? So I just want to invite you, if you don't have your Bibles open yet, to open to Matthew chapter 5 with me, and we'll just walk through these verses one at a time. So we're just starting at verse 1 in, in Matthew chapter 5. We read, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, that is, Jesus. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, here, as we've thought about in Matthew already, there are parallels between Jesus and Moses. And here's another one. When Moses received the Ten Commandments, that was on Mount Sinai. And then those commandments were presented to the people of Israel. Those were to be the rules, the laws by which they were to pattern their community. So here we have Jesus on top of another mountain and in a way giving a new kind of law. It's not one that's abolishing the one that's come before, but there is something of a intensification or a clarification or a fulfillment that's coming through it. Jesus has said at the start of his ministry in chapter 4, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But up to this point, we haven't had any fleshing out of what that looks like. We don't have any fleshing out yet of what repentance looks like, or even what the values of this new kingdom Jesus is inaugurating will be. And by way of response here, we then get the Sermon on the Mount. This is unpacking those two things, what it means to repent and what the pattern of the kingdom of heaven are to look like. And for that reason, when we come to the Beatitudes, these statements that begin with blessed are, and then go on to say the poor in spirit, the meek, etc., we're probably meant to read these not as talking about different groups of people. You have the poor in spirit over here, those mourning over there. Instead, this is meant to be characterizing one community, 
a common trait that's meant to weave through all of them, because this is, in a way, the path of repentance Jesus is laying out. He's laying out the pattern and values of this new kingdom he's inaugurating. And that's how we're going to read these statements today. As Reverend Glenn mentioned, we're doing the first half this week of these Beatitudes and the next half next week. Now, as you've noticed, they each begin with blessed are. That's where we get the word beatitude from. That just comes from the Latin word for blessed. Um, but there's another way that word could be translated. It's, it's really also simply translated as happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. But there's a reason why maybe translators don't translate it happy. Happy feels to us quite a subjective feeling, something that can change depending on our circumstances. Whereas what Jesus is saying here with each of these categories is not something that's meant to be a subjective feeling, but rather, in the words of one commentator, an objective judgment. And we get that sense when we read the word blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, that experience of being blessed might not be something felt in that moment, but it is, Jesus says, a reality nonetheless. One author puts it this way. He says, with each of these statements, it's as if Jesus is saying that the life of the kingdom with him is a life of profound joy, a joy that no person and no circumstance can take away. It may not be a felt reality all the time, but Jesus is saying this is something objectively and deeply true for all who repent and align themselves with this kingdom. So let's begin by looking at the first beatitude here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I just want to appreciate, again, this non-believing professor at this university, how he might read this verse. I think many people today would say, look, if there is a kingdom of heaven out there, if there's any spiritual blessing to be obtained, surely it's the righteous people that should get that blessing. Surely it's those who are standing up on behalf of those who are oppressed. It's those who are on the right side of the issues, those who are doing good things with their lives. Those should be in the blessed category. But Jesus begins by talking about the poor in spirit. And this is a phrase that we see actually has some history in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 57, 15, we read, for instance, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So to be of a lowly spirit is associated with being contrite, with being penitent or remorseful. And perhaps the most vivid illustration of this comes from Jesus's parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it's so short, I'm just going to read it for us so we can get this image of what Jesus clearly had in mind. Luke, this is from Luke 18, starting at verse 9. Luke introduces this parable by saying, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into a temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I think we could say between the Pharisee and the tax collector, we have an image of being rich in spirit and poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to be aware of how far short you fall of God's righteousness. The kingdom belongs not to those who are righteous, but those who know that they are not. You may know that there's another version of the sermon in Luke that's often called the Sermon on the Plain, which seems to be at odds with this being the Sermon on the Mount. But most commentators do think this is the same sermon. Um, if you know a bit of the geography in this area, the mountains around the Sea of Galilee mostly had flat tops. So it's very possible that Jesus gave this sermon on top of one of these mountains, that these two sermons are one and the same. And you may know if you're familiar with Luke's version that there is a slight discrepancy here. Luke says, blessed are the poor. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But most commentators think that this actually is, is one and the same message because Jesus probably gave the sermon originally in Aramaic. And probably the word that Jesus used in Aramaic, his native tongue, not Greek, which is the New Testament, he probably may have just said the word poor, blessed are the poor. But it's not wrong for Matthew to render that word in terms of being poor in spirit, because in the Old Testament, and especially in the intertestamental books, that is, books that were circulating in the Jewish community that aren't scripture, the poor had come to take on a spiritual meaning. The poor were those who, because of their poverty, looked to God alone for help. And that's something that's conveyed in Matthew's words of the poor in spirit. Now, uh, I don't know if you're a fan of Mr. Bean, but there is a Mr. Bean episode where Mr. Bean meets the queen. And how it works is there's a bunch of people lined up to meet the queen. And Mr. Bean, as he's standing there with moments to spare, realizes he has like dirt on his clothes, I believe, or he's missing a button. And so he starts scrambling to get himself presentable for the queen. And he finally, in the last second, gets himself ready. And the queen comes up to him, and he takes a deep bow, and he headbutts her in the head. And she falls over backwards. And while everyone's attending to the queen, he, you know, in perfect Mr. Bean fashion, sneaks away stealthily. And I think we would say, if that were to happen to any old person, if he were to headbutt just a person on the street, that's embarrassing, maybe it's a little humorous, but because it's the queen that he headbutts, it is mortifying. <laughs> and I think that we would say it's not unhealthy for Mr. Bean to feel mortified by what's just happened, because the queen represents, you know, a degree of propriety and majesty, all of these things that have been overturned by what Mr. Bean has just done. His feeling of being mortified in light of the circumstances is an appropriate and healthy response. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, when we come into the presence of a holy God, a God who is holy other, the kind of God before whom Isaiah says, even our best and noblest acts are just dirty rags. When we come in the presence of that kind of God, being poor in spirit is not an unhealthy response. It is the appropriate response. It is the healthy response in light of the majesty and holiness and purity of the God who we stand before. William Cooper, the 17th century poet, captures just how even our best deeds as human, humans are mixed in with sin. He writes, 
My God, how perfect are thy ways, but mine polluted are. Sin twines itself about my praise and slides into my prayer. When I would speak what thou hast done to save me from my sin, I cannot make thy mercies known, but self-applause creeps in. Divine desire, that holy flame, thy grace creates in me. Alas, impatience is its name when it returns to thee. Let others in gaudy dress of fancied merit shine. The Lord shall be my righteousness, the Lord forever mine. The Bible says that this spiritual poverty is the spiritual state of all of us. Paul writes in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus shows us that it is possible to have this be our true spiritual state, but have us not recognize it. In Revelation 3.17, Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And the fact that Jesus writes this to a church suggests that you can be in a church and still be rich in spirit to say, well, we're not perfect, but we're still better than most people, and we have some good things at least to present before God. But only of the poor in spirit does Jesus say here, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We've seen this phrase a few times in Matthew already. Um, It appears all throughout the Bible. One commentator puts it this way, the kingdom of heaven is when you have God's people under God's rule in God's place. And so in a sense, Jesus is saying that those who are poor in spirit, well, they are God's people. They are members of his family. They belong to him. Those who are poor in spirit, they are also in God's place in that God is with them. He does not leave them in their sin. And lastly, that they are under God's rule. They're under his sovereign care and protection. To be poor in spirit is to see yourself as you truly are, thoroughly sinful and unable to please God on your own. And that's not an unhealthy thing to feel if it's something that's really true. Do you see yourself that way? Well, look with me now at the next beatitude we're reading together. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When Jesus speaks of those who are mourning, he's probably speaking to more than just those who mourn the loss of a loved one. Again, this is because he's laying out here a pattern for all of his kingdom and what it means to repent, not just for what a certain group of people are marked by. And here we begin to see there's some logic to how these beatitudes are strung together. Verse 3 tells us it's one thing to be spiritually poor, it's another to acknowledge it. Verse 4 tells us it's one thing to acknowledge one's spiritual poverty, but it's another thing to mourn it. You may know mourning in Jesus's day and in the Old Testament had a number of practices associated with it. Those in mourning would weep. They would sometimes lift up their hands. They would sometimes sit in silence. They might tear their clothes. They might wear an uncomfortable sackcloth. They might even sprinkle ashes or dirt on their heads. Now, we read these practices with somewhat of alarm if we think about someone mourning their own sin and putting dirt on their head. That just seems maybe in our culture the pinnacle of unhealthiness. (laughs) And surely it's not something that's incumbent on all Christians to do. Uh, But in a way, isn't our shock at these practices an illustration of how far we are from where Jesus stood on mourning, from how how far we are from how seriously 
Jesus thinks we should take this. Though these practices are foreign to us today, all of them were very intentional. They created space for grief to happen, to reflect on and lament what's been lost, what could have been, to express pain and to adopt a posture of humility and surrender before God. Mourning your sins looks like reflecting on the sin itself, how it has harmed others, how it has grieved God, and where this sin will lead you if you do not check it. And for Jesus, mourning our sins is a necessary step on the path for repentance, on the path to change. Um, a few years ago, Disney and Pixar released a movie called Inside Out. It was about a young girl named Riley. She grew up in Minnesota, but was moving with her family to a big city in California. But the movie is actually about what goes on in Riley's head. So there are a number of characters who play these emotions in her mind. There's joy and sadness and anger and so forth. And there's this control panel that's in her head and they sort of take turns controlling Riley's emotions. And throughout her childhood, we see that Riley has been mostly led by Joy. Joy has been in charge of the control panel. <laughs> but now the family has moved away. And now Riley's facing these challenges at school and she's missing the community she's left behind. And something begins to happen where she emotionally begins to shut down. Um, and it comes to the point where she runs away from home and is on a bus on the way back to Minnesota. And then it's finally at that moment when in the control room, Joy lets sadness take the controls. And sadness puts her hand on the heart of Riley. And it's only in that moment that Riley begins to soften. And the emotions that had been so sterile and locked up begin to come to life again. And she goes home and runs into the arms of her parents and just weeps before them and expresses the pain and loss of everything that's been left behind. And it's only in that place that she begins this process of healing and something even of joy finds her again. I think in our culture, on the one hand, we want to say to people, don't be sad, don't be discouraged. That's not an appropriate or healthy emotion to feel. Let joy be in charge. But then we get movies like this that remind us that sometimes in certain circumstances, sadness and grieving is the healthiest and most appropriate response. It's part of what makes us whole as human beings. And the same way Jesus is saying here, mourning is at times when it comes to our spiritual states, the appropriate and right response. It's part of what makes a whole and healthy spiritual life. And Jesus says of those who mourn, they shall be comforted. When we mourn the loss of a loved one, often comfort can come through being in the presence of someone else who can just sit with us. And I think in the same way, it's fair to say that when we mourn over our sin, one way that God comforts us is simply by being present there with us. We can go to this dark place because we can know when we do, God will not leave us there. He is not giving up on us and he won't leave us in our sins. He stays with us because he loves us. What this means is that it's possible that maybe we don't experience God's comfort sometimes because we are not adequately mourning. It can be a scary place to go to sit down with our sins and to look them face to face. But only when we do that, Jesus is saying, can we know God's comfort for us? So we must ask ourselves, how is our mourning doing? 
Do you move on from your sins too quickly? Are you guilty of abusing what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, counting on God's grace without recalling the cost at which it was given to us? The state of the Christian, in one sense, is to be ongoing mourning, but also that's one of ongoing comfort. And Jesus says there is blessing in that. Next, we come to blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, the meek, this is not a word we use much today. It also is translated sometimes as gentle. It's the same word Jesus uses when he says of himself, I am gentle and lowly of heart. Someone who's meek isn't someone who throws their weight around to get what they want. One pastor writes, meekness is a humble and gentle attitude towards others, determined by a true estimate of ourselves. So tying back to verses three and four, we see once we've come to see our true spiritual state, once we have mourned over our sins, we should come to have a true sense of ourselves. And that should shape the way we see others in relation to us. It should take out any grounds of feeling superior or proud. And what that means is when we look at our left and right in church or in our families, <laughs> we should realize that no one is more sinful than we are. For every area of sin I see in someone else's life, I certainly have an area of my own. And Jesus says that should make us gentle in how we relate to others. Jesus writes of the meek that they shall inherit the earth. And again, our culture might say, this is not how the world works. You have to assert yourself in order to get what you want. Aren't we taking advantage of, isn't this the kind of person who gets abused by a telemarketer <laughs> who adopts this posture of gentleness? And surely even the Bible says the world seems to work this way. We read in Jeremiah 12, 1, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? There may be cases where the meek seem to inherit the earth, but it certainly isn't the norm. And so what can Jesus mean here? And here maybe it's significant that we pay attention to the tense here. Jesus says they shall inherit the earth. And of the Beatitudes, this is one of them that is more oriented towards the future. One day Jesus will return, and then the Bible speaks of an inheritance. Speaking of inheriting the earth, the Bible speaks that all Christians will have an inheritance. Peter describes it as an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. But I think there's one more thing we could say Jesus is saying in this verse, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus seems to be saying that those who are not meek in some sense, do not even truly possess what they think they have. So there's a story that's told of two people visiting an art gallery, uh, two friends, and they are wandering among the different rooms and admiring the art. And one of the friends walks up very closely to one of the paintings and then reaches out his hands and takes it off the wall and then puts it under his arm and then walks up to another painting and takes it off the wall and puts it under his arm as if that's totally normal. And eventually the other friend, as they're continuing to walk around and look at the art, sort of points out to the first friend, hey, you know, they won't let you take those out of here. <laughs> uh, you're gonna have to give them back. And at this point, the first friend snaps back and says, I know that, don't you think that I know that? I just want to hold them. <laughs> and I think that we laugh at that because 
we know, of course, that one day, yes, when they leave the art gallery, presumably, um, this first friend's going to have to give those paintings back. But Jesus is saying, in a way, it is possible to go through life accumulating things that ultimately we will never get to keep for the long term. Jim Elliott writes, he was this you know, missionary who was ultimately martyred in South America. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Even if some people are seeming to inherit the earth, the question is, can they really rest in possessing it or will they be consumed with the fear that they will lose it and with the knowledge that one day they will have to give up everything they gain? So again, we must ask ourselves, how is our meekness doing? How are you going about inheriting the earth? Is your life marked more by a drive for success at all costs or faithfulness, trusting that God, as one writer writes, God will give his saints the high place they would not seize for themselves? Come to the last beatitude that we're looking at today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, to be hungry and thirsty in the West is not something we're so familiar with. We tend to think of it like being a little nibbly, and we maybe will want to go to the vending machine to get a snack. Um, But to be truly hungry comes with a kind of aching. There's a physical longing, a longing to be filled, and it's something that's uncomfortable. So again, tying back to these earlier verses, we see Jesus is saying it's not enough to acknowledge the state we're in spiritually. It's not enough even to just mourn over our sin. We must also long for God's righteousness to become a reality in our own lives and in our world. When you're hungry for something, something you, sometimes you can be so hungry that you can visualize the thing that you would love to have. You can imagine yourself full. And in the same sense, when we consider our character, we should be seeing the person who God is wanting us to be. And we should be able to visualize it and long for it. We should pray for it. And we should ask ourselves, what will it take for us to get to that place? And when we hunger for righteousness, Jesus says, we will be satisfied. One day we will be perfected in our character. And while this longing for righteousness can't be fully met in this life, we can still meet it in a significant way. Because the gospel message, as Keith would often remind us, is that Jesus died on the cross to forgive us our sins, to give us his spirit, to change our lives now. When we put our faith in Christ, we are born again with this new power to actually obey and not be slaves to our sinful nature. And there is something of blessing and hope in that. Our hungering and thirsting for righteousness to a degree can be satisfied in this life. But before I move on, I want to dwell on how of all the Beatitudes we've looked at, I think this is one that our culture might actually kind of like, at least if we apply hungering and thirsting for righteousness to society maybe not so much to ourselves. As a culture today, we're coming to terms with all of the injustice that lies in the past, even in the past of our own nation, the wrongs that still need to be set right. And to an extent, I think Christians can actually learn from our culture here. Our mourning should not just be limited to our own sinfulness, but to the sinfulness of our world, the ways people who are made in God's image are abused and trampled on and violated 
the way God's laws are disregarded and set aside. And sometimes with what we watch on TV and the friendships we have who, with those who, who aren't Christians, sometimes we can just feel so complacent that the world is this way and these things that should have been grieving us no longer do. But the question is, is the hungering and thirsting for righteousness in our culture today finding satisfaction? You may know that just last week, we finally raised the flags in Canada. They had been lowered for the longest time in Canadian history, ever since those remains of children had been found at a number of former residential schools across this country. And many people, when the flags were announced they were going to raise them, expressed sorrow at this, that it just felt even still too soon. And I think to an extent, that's quite understandable. Of course, we know that for a thousand years, if the flags were lowered, that still wouldn't be enough on its own to atone and make up for the gravity and the terribleness of all that was lost through those children who we now find the remains of. Jesus and the Christian perspective is that the only way we can hunger and thirst for righteousness in this life without being utterly crushed is if we have the conviction that one day there will be a final judgment where all injustices will be accounted for. One day all wrongs will be set right and there will be no one who will be able to say at the end of time, something is still lacking in justice. The Christian believes that God's justice will be one day fully done. And that means we can stand and care about justice and righteousness in our culture without being utterly crushed and unsatisfied in the process. want to ask, how hungry are you today? Are you maybe finding yourself complacent with your conduct and character or with the brokenness of the world? Are you thirsting and hungering for righteousness? Well, just as I conclude now, I just want to point out that there should be something disquieting or worrying as we read these verses, because if we read them rightly and honestly, we should realize that we do not live this way. We are not always poor in spirit as we ought to be. We neglect to mourn our sins. We fall into pride instead of meekness. And far too often, we are content to stay at our current level of righteousness. But I think this just shows us part of the purpose of the Beatitudes. And the whole Sermon on the Mount is to keep us in the very poverty of spirit that begins this whole passage. And in that state, Jesus says, there is blessing. And the question that hangs over the whole Bible is how is this possible? I just offer to you that what's poignant about these words is that each one of them we could associate with Jesus. If ever there were a moment when Jesus was poor in spirit, it would surely be when he was on the cross and when he cried out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment when Jesus was poor in spirit and bearing the weight of all sin, he did not receive the kingdom of heaven right then and there. Instead, the doors of heaven were shut to him. When Jesus mourned, that would have been perhaps in Matthew 23, when he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. Jesus mourns, but on the cross, as he's suffering, he was not comforted by God. Jesus certainly was meek, if anyone ever was. As a lamb, he was silent before his shearers. He did not open his mouth to the false accusations against him. But far from inheriting the earth, the only possession Jesus had, his garment, was taken from him and gambled over by the soldiers. 
Jesus certainly hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He lived a perfectly righteous life. No other religion even makes that claim about any figure in it. But on the cross, God the Father did not satisfy Jesus, but left him thirsting. Jesus was thirsty on the cross, thirsting for God's presence taken away from him. In other words, we could summarize and say, Jesus kept the Beatitudes, but instead of being blessed, he was cursed. He took what we deserved. And all of that so that now, when we are poor in spirit, we can have the hope of the kingdom of heaven. So that when we mourn, we can have the comfort that Jesus suffers with us, and he will not leave us or forsake us. So that when we are meek, we can know we share in his sufferings and have the promise of one day inheriting treasure in heaven. So that when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus satisfies us by giving us his spirit and gives us a new heart that has a new ability to live for God. So final question as we close, just how is your repenting going these days? I think one way to apply these verses is to ask ourselves, when we sit before God and we confess our sins to him, do we go through each of these stages? Do we acknowledge our poverty and spirit before God and how our sinfulness leaves us helpless to please him? Do we mourn our sin? Do we take the time to reflect on the damage it does, the pain it brings to our Lord, and the trajectory it sets us on if we do not change? Do we make ourselves meek? Do we check our hearts to make sure that we are humbled and soft towards others? And do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do we envision what righteousness would look like in our own lives and in our world? And do we commit ourselves wholly to it, trusting in God's power in us? When we do these things because of Jesus's death in our place, Jesus says, ours is the kingdom of heaven. We will be comforted. We will inherit the earth. We will be satisfied. And we will be blessed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.